0: Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, Solutions Expert and Strategic Advisor with NRC Health, and it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. Welcome back, all of our listeners, to the latest episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. We have a very unique guest that I've had the opportunity to work with. Really excited to get this episode rolling. Today, we are joined by Jorge Torres. Hello, Jorge. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? I'm doing great. And I'm really interested to get into this because you have a background from multiple industries You spent quite a bit of time with the airlines, which is an industry and a lot of brands that I'm fascinated with. I think a lot of business travelers are fascinated with, but you also have a background in mechanical and electrical engineering, and you are what they call a culture architect, which I love that phrasing. I love that title. I want to get into that more because I haven't heard that. You've got a fantastic background in transforming cultures, and you've done quite a bit of work in healthcare, which is where our paths crossed, how did you get into healthcare?
1: Well, I'm going to try to be brief, but it's like a 25-year-long story. As you said, I'm a mechanical electrical engineer because I've always been intrigued on how things work. I don't remember the first time I started traveling because my dad was a commercial airline pilot. So since I have memory, I remember people talking about. You know, look at the Japanese culture, look at the American culture as if culture was part of your blood, part of your DNA. But I challenged that because I remember in Tijuana looking at people behaving really bad, but that same person crossed the border to San Diego and became a perfect citizen. or an American in San Diego perfect citizen crossing to Tijuana and becoming a mess. So for me, it was like, mm, interesting. and Eventually, when I was doing a project, I was studying uh, mechanical engineering. I had a project in Nissan, the Japanese car maker in Aguascalientes in Mexico. And I witnessed more than 2,000 Mexicans behaving like Japanese. And that was a shock. Like, what did the Nissan do to these guys to behave like this? Because if the other 100 million Mexicans behave like this, 2,000, Mexico would be a perfect country. But it's not. So I want to learn how to do it, how to make people behave the way they need to behave. And that's why after you know my MBA, I my first job ever was programming robots in Canada. And programming a robot is pretty simple. It's one or zero. If this happens, do this. Else do that. So it's binary. A robot doesn't get tired, doesn't forget, doesn't get unionized. And then after that assignment, I started managing a 300 unionized workers warehouse. And that was a shock. A very simple process. I was getting 300 different responses. That was a trigger for me. Like, I really want to learn how the Nissan guys did it. And uh, I quit that job. I moved to Chicago. I did my MBA and specialized in organizational behavior. And that's when I started getting the theory behind transformations and change management. And after my MBA, I did a lot of consulting jobs, same thing re engineering, lean, continuous improvement. But it always boiled down to making people do what they're supposed to do with the way they're supposed to do it to achieve the, the start results. So that took me fast forward to the airline industry, in which I was involved in the mega merger, which was the largest merger of airlines in Latin America, 55,000 employees. And as part of this merger was first the legal integration, then the operational integration, and then the cultural integration. And for that, I was working first with a big consulting firm, McKinsey, and they recommended us to use the Disney Institute. I didn't even know that Disney had a consulting firm. (laughs) So I started working with the Disney Institute I went to Orlando and I got to get trained on the Disney way of doing things. And when I was in that training and in the middle of, you know, or beneath the castles, I realized that Disney is not magical because of the castles of the princesses, but they are really good at execution. So, as a matter of fact, in their organization, the owner of culture is a COO. And while I was there, I was exposed to a book. If Disney ran your hospital, mm-hmm. nine and a half things you would do different from um, Mike Lee. And when I read that book, I was like, "Wow!" I was amazed to see how many similarities are between healthcare and airlines. It's a highly capital-intensive, people-intensive, highly regulated, high risks, and very tiny margins. So I was like, mm, "This really made me wonder." It's like wow, I think what I'm doing at the airline, I could also do in healthcare. And one day I met the CFO of an amazing hospital here in Miami, which is Mount Sinai Medical Center. And they gave me the opportunity to, hey, why don't you bring what you're doing in the airline to the hospital? And their focus was helping to improve patient experience and age gaps. That happened in 2017, 2018, 19, right before COVID. COVID. And that's what I've been spending a lot of time. It's funny how I got to healthcare, but one thing for sure, I want to keep working in healthcare because for me, out of all the industries I've worked, it's the most purposeful driven or purpose driven industry in which the opportunity for a person to touch the lives of so many lives, you know, for the rest of their lives, it's just unique. So I've loved it.
0: Well, we love having you in healthcare. I mean, you have a curiosity about behavior and processes and really systems in many ways. And that curiosity is taking you all over the country and across industries and international as well. It's not our first opportunity that we've had to work together. In fact, just last month, we were at the NRC Health Symposium on the other side of the country in Seattle, and you had a session that had people ranting and raving And that doesn't always happen in a breakout session, right, on the last day of the conference. So you did a fantastic job. The crux of your message was that there is another revolution coming. And people have heard about the Industrial Revolution and most recently the Fourth Revolution, if you've read that book by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. But you had a completely different take and sort of a new layer specific to healthcare on this fifth revolution. So for those who were not privy to that session or haven't heard this from you yet what is the fifth revolution in healthcare Well this
1: is a concept that I was I didn't know until maybe almost 2 years ago in a philosophy class One thing I did not mention is that after my MBA and after so many years trying to also understand How people work, how people behave. Instead of studying psychology, I started getting, you know, studying a master in theology. And as part of that that master in theology, when I was in this class of philosophy, the professor brought up this concept of the fifth revolution. The first revolution, it was the mechanization around 1780 with steam power. The second revolution, was with electricity and combustion engine, we got into mass production. The third revolution, many of us lived it, which was electronic systems and computers, you know, especially automation. We are currently in the fourth revolution, cyber, physical, information as a commodity, the internet of things. And during these 230 something years, in this timeline I'm describing, Is what we call the dehumanization, because before the first revolution, human beings had a sense of what being human was about. There was a strong sense of purpose and belonging. People had some idea of, hey, what's the purpose of my life? There were expected outcomes. There was time to work, you know, to eat, to be with family, to be with the community, with your friends. In time for religion, time for God. Or there was time, you know, to prepare, to sow, to wait, to harvest and to enjoy the fruit of your work. So there was like a rhythm of life, if you will. But suddenly with the first revolution, we pulled these guys from their towns and put them into big cities in front of a machine in a plant to pull a lever all day long. So We removed the sense of purpose. We started isolating people. And that only became worse throughout these many years. To a point that nowadays people, despite the digital revolution in which we thought that everyone was going to be connected with everyone on the planet, people are more isolated than ever. And by the way, It's during the first revolution and so on. That's when alcoholism, drug addiction, depression started. To a point that nowadays, it's it's a pandemic of people that are depressed, of suicides, of why? Because we remove that sense of purpose. As a matter of fact, during the first and fourth revolution, when you think about HR, HR implies that. You know it's human resources, that implies that you're just a resource. Just as buying napkins and buying glasses and I can buy your time. I get your time and I'll you know I'll give you a check. So everything is a transaction. So from being more like a purpose-driven community and it was relationship-wise, we transform into a transactional society. And what sociologists, psychologists, and theologists believe is that nowadays people, these newer generations are gravitating towards something that is purposeful driven. That's why you see people like if they find a dog, you know, a stray dog in the street, they go, you know, they create a GoFundMe campaign to help the little stray dog. And the air, the green uh, revolution has to do with Hey, something that goes beyond myself, something that is bigger than myself, something that has a bigger purpose. So all these people believe that a fifth revolution is coming, which is believed to be called the humanistic revolution, not humanism. Humanism is something that has been happening for many decades, which is replacing God with a human being. Here is just like logistics. It's humanistics. Is how can organizations transform from a transactional environment to relational environment. If you ask an IT guy, they're going to tell you that the fifth revolution is related to how to almost become like a robot, you know, technology and the merging of technology with the human being. Technology is going to keep evolving. But there's a strong sense that people, they will keep using technology, but they are looking for something purposeful driven. And those organizations that can create that change, that can make that switch to create a strong sense of purpose, a strong sense of relevance, relationship, providing personal time, are the ones that will survive because we'll be the ones that are attracting and retaining employees, which is one of the biggest issues companies, especially in healthcare, are having right now. And just to share one example that happened to me. Two days ago in the morning, after a training that my team and I did with new employees. Every Monday, there's a group of new employees joining um, the organization. And we do a culture training. And we talk about these type of concepts. And after we left, one nurse came running after us. Hey, I just want to share with you. This is the second time I joined Mount Sinai. I was here two years ago. And I had a great time but I was lured to become a traveler nurse. And I went to hospital B, hospital C, hospital D, until I realized that, what am I doing? The best place for me to work is at Mount Sinai because they treat me as a person. I have there such a sense of family. I mean, I was having fun at work. In their hospitals, they made me just to work and to comply with everything. But it was Completely transactional. Here, it feels like a family. So here's a a nurse with two years of experience now that decided to come back. And she says, I'm going to stay here forever because at least she felt in this organization that it's not a job. It's her family. This is at the end what the Fifth Revolution is supposed to be. It's coming. Some people are already talking about it. Maybe if you find an article online, it's going to be a technology related. But some other people are talking about the core of human beings have to do with what's my purpose in life.
0: It's so powerful, Jorge, to hear you describe this. And it feels revolutionary to me. We've gone so transactional and you've seen the result of that. And you've seen how that's caused so many of the issues of burnout and people leaving and just the workforce mess we're in. We also see it on the patient side. You know, you're familiar with the Patient No Longer book and the work that we did on the book, same namesake as the podcast. But when we did the research for that book and we're really rediscovering the heritage and the work around Harvey Picker, he observed back in World War II that people were very in tune with their patients. The physician and patient had a relationship. It was absolutely on the relational side, not the transactional side. And his argument in his work in the 70s, 80s, 90s, doing the the Picker Symposium work, getting that started, was that we've moved completely away from that. And technology was supposed to improve that bond. And in many ways, it sort of obfuscated it and distracted us from it. I have to tell you quickly, I was recently listening in on a symposium around mental health as a virtual attendee. And they were talking about these ill effects of Zoom and screens all day and not enough human-to-human interaction. And that was the first half of the presentation. The back half was the answer. And it centered around AI-driven (laughs) chatbots, robots, essentially. You would have a Zoom with them for 30 minutes, and (laughs) you would talk about your problems. So it's like, hey, you're poisoned right now. Here's some more poison. That's not the answer. And you and I feel strongly about that. And that really drove a lot of the work that we did for the most recent symposium. For the people who dive into digital and say digital is the answer. And by the way, I'm not disputing that digital technology has done some fascinating things for healthcare and it has improved efficiencies. And, you know, the EMR has some real positives. But for the people who say, I think it's digital not the human side of this, like this sounds good, but how are we really gonna rehumanize healthcare, as you say it? It's a tough challenge. What do you say to those folks who have a little bit of doubt about it?
1: For me, digital is the icing of the cake, or it's an enabler of a process. It's not the process. And maybe for people that did not leave what I was able to leave, a world without that much technology. I was born and raised when cell phones did not exist. And it was beautiful because number one, obviously cell phones have an advantage. I remember the biggest issue I had not having a cell phone is when there were any delays at airports, the biggest challenge you had was to find an available public phone. You know, sometimes for 30, 40 minutes, waiting for the guys in front of you to have their conversations, for you to be able to pick up the phone and make a call to the airline to make a change in reservation. So if anything, for me, that's the biggest issue that this type of technology solved. But before cell phones and even before beepers, it was checking time. So it was a personal time. This is Jorge Torres as a person. I arrived at work seven o'clock in the morning. I would punch in. And that's when became Jorge Torres, supervisor or a manager in this plant. Five o'clock arrived or four o'clock arrived. I punched out, and then Jorge Torres as a person. When technology started coming in, especially with cell phones, it started like blurring the personal with work time, to a point now that everything is work time, and it could be eight o'clock at night, and people get offended if you don't pick up the phone because. They called mm-hmm. you at 8 o'clock of time because they needed you. And by the way, communication was much better. Because at 7 o'clock, 7.30 in the morning, we had the only meeting that they, which everyone would be in the room. And in a matter of 20, 30 minutes, they would put all the points for the day, all the highlights, all the training. And then we would go and work. Not read emails. Emails did not exist. So no time for emails. Obviously, no time for video conferences. and. If I needed to solve an issue, I would either need to pick up the phone and talk to that person or to walk to that person's office and have a personal relationship. But nowadays, you know, it's forget up you know, in addition to the issue of not having personal and work time, is I write an email and instead of sending it to one person, I send it to 20 different people. And that 20 different people, you know, reply back to all, and sometimes I don't even need to copy all those people. And we became so inefficient at communicating because we depend so much on technology. And on top of this, when you digitalize now that interaction with your clients or your patients, you're removing even further that emotional connection. And granted. You know, I'm a frequent flyer and I love to check in online. That part of the digital process is great. But when I'm checking in my luggage, that interaction, those 30 seconds to a minute that I have with that employee creates a completely different perspective or perception of my experience. Or when I board the plane, that human interaction, you can never, never get rid of. Yeah, there's no replacing
0: it. There's no, no, replacing no, no, no replacing that with technology.
1: So I would just say, beware of what is it you want to digitalize. Okay, if it's a process that by making digital, you're going to become more efficient, well, it's great, but at what expense? And I'm not talking about the cost of the technology itself, but is are we removing an interaction with the patient? If we're not, it's okay. Let's make it digital to make it more efficient and more achievable. But for example, a good idea for a digital is the app that walks me through the hospital campus so I can get to the place that I'm supposed to be there rather than spending 30 minutes lost within 20 different buildings in the medical system. That is a great tool. But if it's something that instead of calling a call center to, you know, ask a question, to have a robot answer back to me, sometimes I feel offended
0: you've lost that human interaction. You know, that's a great example of wayfinding. Another one I love is virtual waiting rooms where technology can help you to say, listen, your doctor's a little bit behind today. You don't need to leave right now. You're going to end up waiting in that waiting room. Let's save you a few minutes by just giving you a heads up. I don't necessarily need a person to do that if I can get the notification. But where it falls down, and we've seen this process, is where people build this front-end Online scheduling is great, but then you're filling out all of your forms, you're kind of answering all those questions online. Okay, fine. When you get there in person, there's this expectation that you've already checked in, that you've already done all your work. I don't have to do anything. I mean, I see front desk people, I observe this in the wild saying, you know, insurance, okay, you're, okay, yep, you're already signed up, have a seat. There's no interaction there. There's no relationship there because that online check in process on my iPad the night before is really replacing that interaction. I don't want it to replace that interaction, I want it to enhance it. I want it to make it so that when I'm in person, I'm getting off on the right foot and it's going smoothly and I'm not waiting as long. There's a big difference though between replacement and enhancement. And we don't get that right in healthcare very often. I'm gonna make some
1: examples of the airline industry for a couple of reasons. I have a lot of experience there. But also, I believe that the airline industry is like 30 to 40 years ahead of healthcare in terms of becoming efficient. Before, you flying was only for rich people. It was not accessible. It was really expensive. Yeah, it was a luxury. How come flying became available for everyone? It became so accessible, despite the fact that all the costs in these 30, 40 years have kept going up. But the actual prices Real term prices have come down by a factor of I think 40, 50, 60 percent. And it's not because 40 years ago, you know, the government came up with an Obama fly program that (laughs) mandated everyone to fly to bring cost, you know, the price down. That would be absurd. What happened is that the government removed restrictions and say eastern can fly western, western can fly eastern. Northwest can fly southwest, southwest, northwest. So it was removing barriers, so airlines starting to compete. And when you compete, if you don't become efficient, you, know, you, you compete with price. And those airlines that, yeah, brought the price down, but their cost remained high, went bankrupt. And people in my generation have at least this long of all the airlines that disappeared. Those few that invested in technology, that invested in processes. And those are the ones that were able to survive. And then the second wave was with internet. You know, we removed the middle guy before we had to go through a travel agent. Now we can go directly to American Airlines or to United or Delta. And competition became even stronger. But again, what these airlines did to survive was we got to become efficient. And at the same time, we got to be efficient and with the good service because you're a click away from the other airline. So and all these loyalty programs and so on is how to be efficient, yet create such an experience that people keep coming back to your airline. And in this case, for example, airlines, they went through all the passenger journey. And we hear this in customer experience, the customer journey. Yeah, and the customer journey is important because you get to understand what the customer goes through, what are the pain points, what are those milestones in which you have an actual interaction, and which ones are the ones that you would not need an interaction with to make it more efficient. Yet, that client, that customer, should feel that we're taking care of him or her while we're rendering the service. So that's a lot of what, uh, you know, the airline did many decades ago in order to survive. And I believe that healthcare now is feeling the pressure. Now that there's more, you know, um, technology-wise, you can have uh, remote appointments. And that is going to, you know, bring some competition. But before, hospitals didn't have that need. During COVID, that's another example of how hospital systems had to evolve in order to become more efficient, in order to survive. So it was a a long answer to your question, but is for me, it's you got to first make sure that your processes are designed to be aligned to what your customers want and need more than want. And then once you have the process in place and it's executed properly, then you can think about making even more you know, putting that icing in the cake with all these beautiful, you know, technological applications.
0: I think in a lot of ways, we don't design processes around the patient. We design them around what we think the processes should be. And so there's an issue there of shifting the locus of that focus to what the patient wants and designing the process around them. And I think we really struggle there. That's been a big part of our work at NRC Health is saying, design the process around the patient, see what works, put that up against the system in place. I think you do such a beautiful job of looking at the entire system and seeing it for what it is and and seeing the big picture and then getting into the details. I think sometimes we start at the details and work our way out and realize we got it wrong. You and I have had several conversations about our data, about human understanding. That was part of your approach at Symposium. And we look at that as start at that individual level, that unique person, there's no one else like them, and build and design around that. That's a big change for a lot of people, but we think it's a foundational piece. You agree as well. But you sort of define that work as gaps. And I love the work that you do around identifying gaps and what the gaps are. Can you talk a little bit about that? You even have a gap zero that we talked (laughs) about. At Symposium, which I had never heard that phrasing before. Can you talk a little bit about when people want to get to who they serve and have that be their genesis of their work and the design of their processes? How do they do that and what stands in their way? Magic happens
1: when perception is better than the expectation. When you're expecting five and you get seven, it's like, wow. But if you're expecting 10 and you get eight, like, ah. But in order to create that magic, you need to start by understanding who's your customer. Or you can even change that to employee or any stakeholder. You know, do we know what they want and what they actually need? They might want A, but in reality, they need B or C. And this is where. Nowadays, you see a lot of companies spending a lot of time, you know, doing these customer journeys and the employee journey to understand what are those expectations. And hopefully most organizations are doing that. Hey, we have different type of patients or different type of employees, different type. And the needs and wants are different depending on the type of client that we have. Well, we need to have that clear. Because once that's clear, we can go ahead and design processes and assign resources to meet those expectations. If you go to a Disney park and you have the expectation of getting in Space Mountain five times during the morning, guess what? They are expert aligning expectations. Say, hey, the line is 150 minutes. Whether you like it or not, it is what it is. And they post it like, your big numbers say 150 minutes wait time. But at least they aligned the expectation. They gave you the option of not getting in or the fast pass. Or if you're going to spend 150 minutes online, they're going to entertain you during the queue, during the line. So the 150 minutes felt more like 30 minutes. But in order for, to create that, You need to understand the customer expectation. And if those expectations cannot be met, what are the mechanisms that you're going to have to align and mitigate the fact that it's physically impossible, you know, meet this. Like an an ED, you know, in this massive ED, the expectation of a patient was, I want to see a doctor now. So wait time, zero seconds that is economically unfeasible. You cannot have physicians just standing by the door waiting for a patient to show up. But what we do is, hey, a nurse will see you now, a doctor will see you in 10 minutes. And we deliver, we design the process for a nurse to immediately, actually is a PCT, the one, you know, a nurse assistant, the one that is readily available to receive this patient immediately. So from that perspective, the expectation that we do was zero, we met because we're treating that person at moment zero. And by the way, the process was designed for seven minutes. We under promise over deliver. And when the doctor shows up in seven minutes, it's like, wow, this is the wow factor. But that's designing, you know, after you know those expectations, the first gap is do you know the expectations? The gap one would be do you have your processes, your resources, design or align to meet those expectations? And let's assume you do. Then the next gap is going to be, okay, are your employees always performing as expected? Is the nurse or the physician um, actually you know performing according to the standard? because after that then the last gap is, okay, did we create the right perception? That would be the factor of the gap number three. What's the actual perception? Those are the employee service, And this is where NRC does a great job, you know, with uh, mechanisms, you know, survey mechanisms to understand what was the perception, but now with human understanding, with trm like mechanisms to really get to know who your customer is. And obviously here, best way to describe the part of processes and execution would be with an example. How come your apple pie is better than my apple pie? There's nothing new under the sun because we have access to the same recipe and we have access to the same ingredients. How come yours is better than mine? And, yeah, it has to do with the recipe because maybe you have an additional uh, ingredient or maybe a different oven that makes your pie. You know, taste better, and this is where lean and reengineering initiatives happen. Is how to make that kitchen recipe work better. When I say better, is with better taste, uh, safer, or more efficient. But the part where most organizations suffer and struggle is how to make people follow. Because it's the other factor is making sure that employees in this case, the cooks, are consistently executing the recipe and with the love, care, and dedication that they put while executing the recipe. So meaning it has to do with the aptitude, which is training. It's not the teaching, but the preaching that makes a difference. But also with the attitude. How do we make them have such an attitude? How do we establish these mechanisms to improve our aptitude and our attitude so when I consistently execute this kitchen recipe I consistently create that amazing perception that is better than the expectation so in a nutshell at the end it boils down to yes portion of the recipe ingredients and that's where you have lean and tools to make it more efficient but the hardest part is making people behave the way they are supposed to behave with following the kitchen recipe step by step with any deviation and with a great attitude that's what creates that different experience from a customer from a patient perspective
0: nobody expects a burnt apple pie i think you can visualize that in your mind you expect that perfect apple pie that you know it was like the cartoons when we were a kid and The smell was wafting through the room, right? That's our expectation. And you and I have discussed this in the past. People get overwhelmed when trying to design around the patient or even before they're a patient around the consumer. What I find refreshing about your approach, Jorge, is you're a details guy. You're a process guy. You're an engineer. And yet you even say that is not the first step because it's not the first gap. The first gap is understanding those we serve and what they want. And I often tell people when you're swimming in data around quality and safety and loyalty and access, stop and start with expectation. What is being formed right now in the mind of the consumer? It's not a burn apple pie. So I love the way that you put that on the front end before we get into process and detail, that we've got to understand what they want from us. I think that is so pure and I think that is very rare in healthcare. But to get into the process of the detail for a minute, because you know I've got an electrical and mechanical engineer in front of me, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> I think in healthcare, there's listeners who would say, we do sometimes get the execution piece right. We do sometimes put a system in place that works. It works for us and works for the patient. There are certainly bright spots throughout this industry. But I also think sometimes it's really hard for us to then change and adapt those systems. Because one thing about consumer expectations that's a constant is that they will change. We have seen people who value convenience now way more than they did 10 years ago, who don't value awards like they used to do. We've seen changes in consumer appetites and sentiment around healthcare. And I think sometimes it's tough for us then to redesign systems that frankly have been successful or have made us a lot of money. And we really don't want to change them unless we absolutely have to. But that's where human understanding comes in. That's where when you start at zero and say, well, what does the patient want, the consumer want, you have to be open to the discomfort that you may have to change. One of our previous guests, Mike Soblowski, CEO of Trinity Health, talks about these consistent headwinds in front of us, our workforce and reimbursement and just the challenges in America right now. What would you say about future facing continuing to keep these habits ingrained. I mean, that's a big part of your work coming up, right? And maybe even a book? Well,
1: I'm working on a book that describes precisely that, the methodology. And as I said at, right at the beginning, is I've always been curious of understanding how things work. So I see a nice car, but I'm always opening the hood and see what's, beneath, you know, what's below the hood or what's behind the dashboard. And that's throughout my professional life, maybe intuitively at the beginning when I saw the way Disney works and the way the airlines work is boils down to what you don't measure, you don't track, you don't control, you don't improve. So if you want to sustain, you need to measure that sustainability, if you will. So in the example that I'm showing here is I consistently, I can track all the departments, all the units in this hospital. If they're doing the dialogue, What's the mood? We have this daily mood tracker. I measure how many recognitions the leaders are giving, and I measure how many improvement opportunities they are coming up with. Here at the bottom, we have these post-its. The last question the leader asks is, what is preventing you from doing a good job? Well, my wow is broken or the Wi-Fi signal. So we put all of this here. And obviously people getting engaged because if they say something, And eventually we come up with a solution for that idea that, wow, they really care about me. If they see that after people recognize them verbally, we give them a recognition and we give them a bonus or whatever, which is a satisfactory, but still, it's just the fact that, hey, I feel part of a family. But I have the mechanisms behind it to make sure that this is happening. Same thing with process confirmation. I know which employee is improving, which employee is not necessarily improving, which leader is not rating, you know, not coaching very well or not. And at the end of the day, to take a decision, you have to be based on data. And more than data and information, NRC is amazing with that. But here's how can I have information about my employees' behaviors? It's through mechanisms like this where I can see the compliance and the adherence of the different behaviors, and I can know exactly out of the 350 behaviors that we have on the floor, these are the two or three that people are having difficulties, like they making sure that they can pull the curtain. Something as, as simple as that. I can track it here because we're observing and saying, hey, that's something we need to reinforce and where we will reinforce it in this dialogue, which is an amazing preaching mechanism because it's not the teaching, but the preaching. And although we repeat and repeat and repeat, maybe this lady has seen it for 150,000 times. But these two girls are new. So the only way to make sure that in a matter of few weeks, maybe three, four weeks, these new nurses are at the same level of a really seasoned one is through teaching and preaching and preaching and through personal one-on-one coaching. So this is the way, the only way for you to sustain it and to avoid, and I have it, this is the roller coaster you were describing of we go, we train. We leave that unit, and they forget, and then we need to come back and retrain. And this is an ongoing roller coaster. If we have these mechanisms, we work consistently, consistently, and persistently, teaching, reteaching, and on a group basis and on a personal basis. You prevent your operations from falling, and you keep your the sustainability of your results.
0: Well, and the sustainability too is it's based on the human level and it's based on the experience as an employee, for example. But employees change. We have seen that over the last year with the great resignation, right? Some of our workforce has completely shifted out and there's new people coming in. So I love that example of the process uh, can get those people up to speed, but also people who've been here 10 years forget things. I think that's a very authentic part of this that sometimes we don't, we don't account for in our processes. And so it allows people who are new or old to recapture what they're here for, to relearn some behaviors that they need to, and to keep that performance going. And yet the model's not too rigid to where it can't change based on the expectations of those we serve, which gets back down to the people level. I love that. I think that makes a ton of sense. And we're going to continue to stay connected with you as you finish this book around performance habit and continue our work together on human understanding. You've obviously got a breadth of experience. You've been all over the place. but Go back in time to sort of your first day starting forward. Now, pretend you're running into that individual in an elevator and tell them, what would you want them to know on day one of their journey through this winding path? Well, I think one of the key ones that
1: comes up to my mind right now is that a transformation is not possible if you try to cascade it down. Cascading down stuff does not work. And unfortunately, we tend to do that because it's, this person tells this person, this person with the hope that everything permits back to, permits down to everyone in the organization. Guess what? Maybe a fraction, two, three percent of what someone said at the top reaches the front line. So do not plan a transformation. Do not plan any change like this top down. Have to be bottom up, like bubbles. Bubbles go up. That's the only way that to do it. And all I think one of the really key reasons why uh, we've been really successful at these transformations is because we work on the front line. We decide, okay, we want to transform this hospital. We pick the most problematic department, the most emblematic one, and we work directly with the nurses or with the checking agents if I'm in the airline or if we are in any other industry with that front line and front line leadership. Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy. Number one, they recognize that you're humble enough to accept that you don't know. You think you know, but in reality you have no clue. It is those people that have been doing it forever that know what needs to happen. They have the best ideas. The thing is that those ideas don't bubble up because there's no mechanisms for it. But if you arrive with that being humble enough and start working with them, and with the first uh, leadership level, could be the supervisor, could be a charge nurse, could be a team leader, and show them and tweak the things, same things they are already doing, potentially. Just tweak them to improve them and for them to see that hey, this is they're here actually to help us out. They suddenly, you know, consider you as part of the team. And the change happens in a matter of few weeks. And what happens with the other units, with all the departments, they're like, wow, I like what they're doing. Once the needles start moving, it's like, I also want it. So they buy in and they start talking about it and it starts like spreading out. And what happens to the next layer above? They look down it's like, what is happening? Mm, I want to listen. I want it too. So the trickle up of this is the best thing that can happen because by the time that it arrives to a level that there's always a layer that is kind of a showstopper, Mm -hmm. once it reaches that showstopper level, it's too late to stop it or to influence it in the way that that person would normally do. And that's the main advice I would give is always do a bottom-up approach.
0: Well, I love that answer. You kept it to an elevator ride that may be one of the higher rises in Miami, but you have those there, so that's fine. I would have had trouble (laughs) in Nebraska. But I love what you're saying because that bubble up strategy, it starts at the individual level, which is where so much of this comes down to, but it allows it to spread and spread to other teams and create this groundswell versus top down from the corporate level trying to dictate what we need to do. And again, it creates organizational change, which is the goal in the end. This has been fantastic, Jorge. You've been a great guest to talk to. You have such a unique view and such a great outsider view of this. So we will keep this discussion going. Uh, We'll post your information as well as we upload this episode if people want to get in touch with you. But you'll be staying close to the the NRC Mm -hmm. Health family. So I just thank you so much for being on Patient No Longer today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure and looking forward to continue the discussion. Wonderful. Well, for our listeners, we look forward to continuing the discussion with you. Thanks for joining us and have a safe and wonderful day wherever you are. Goodbye. Goodbye. Take care.